So we only have two more messages after today, and we'll finish this particular emphasis from moving deeper to wider, then to higher. So in the month of November and a little bit of the month of December, we'll talk about um, uh, climbing higher in our view of life and in our ethics that govern our behavior with one another. So I've been just very quickly highlighting each week some of the questions that we have been talking about, and these questions enlarge us in our perspective. We talked a little bit uh, about creation. How did it all begin? We talked a little bit about God, who God is, light, love, and spirit. Talked a little bit about humanity uh, being a part of the evolutionary process, but are bearers of the image of God in the world. We talked about the kaleidoscope of connections that's found in the many religions around the world. We then talked a little bit about altars everywhere that worship includes a variety of things in the religions around the world, idols, icons, and imaginations. And then last week we talked about what is sin. And the definition that I gave you last week uh, that I think is encompassing enough to cover a lot of different angles of it is sin is the chaotic force that seeks to devour human flourishing through willful participation of dehumanizing others. So sin leads to sins, and that's what leads to disorder and chaos in the world around us. Well, today, I want to ask the question, what is salvation? Now, salvation is a word that is a part of the Christian subculture. We hear a lot about it. It's found in a lot of the hymns that we sing as well. But you're going to find that it is something that I want to use as an illustration. It's an umbrella term, okay? So think about an umbrella. We needed it yesterday, didn't we? Okay, and so you take an umbrella and you have those small little kind that's in your car there that's barely big enough to uh, keep you dry, but then you have a golf umbrella and it's big enough to not only have yourself but somebody else under it as well. Some terms, some words are umbrella words. Now here's what I mean by that. So let's illustrate with the idea of a couple of English words that are umbrella words. If I was to say to you the word trunk, trunk, T-R-U-N-K, what is the first thing that would come to your mind? Anybody? Okay, trunk of a car. Okay, trunk of a tree. An elephant, trunk of an elephant. You still have... That's right, a storage... uh, Uh, type of trunk where you might put uh, blankets or clothes or whatever. So an umbrella word can have a variety of nuances to it, even differences of uh, definition. Let's use one more. Nail. N-A-I-L. Nail. That's an umbrella term. When I say the word nail, what comes to your mind? What's that? Hammer, okay, hammer, a spike, that you use a hammer uh, to drive a spike in. What else? Fingernail, okay, all right. What else? Anything else? Okay, all right, yeah, good, excellent. 
Or it becomes part of our colloquial language as well. If you've done something really well with excellence, sometimes we will say, I nailed it, right? So those are two examples of some umbrella words that can be used at times to describe a variety of different things. So when we look at the word salvation, we need to understand that it is something that has a variety of different ways of looking at it. So I've summarized it in these three terms, liberation, restoration, and shalom. Okay, and I'm going to illustrate how it's used in those various ways. Now before I get there though, let me say a couple of things that I think will set us up for this. So it's important to understand that words evolve just like humans evolve. So I bet if you talk to a, a person from the generation previous to yours and you brought out several words, what you'll find is that the, the word has evolved to be something far bigger than how they use that word or sometimes a completely different uh, meaning as well. So the word gay, okay, represents in our uh, vernacular uh, a part of a community, the LGBTQ community. But I bet if you ask your mother, father, or grandparents, what does the word gay mean? That's not even on the radar, okay? Gay means what? happy, okay? So words change over time depending upon how people use them. So as words evolve, we evolve as well. Because sometimes those definitions of words reflect how we have changed in the way we see the world. Now, in the Christian subculture, the word salvation usually meant that after you die, you will be able to go to heaven, a post-mortem experience, okay? So then we come up with sub-language for that. Are you saved, okay? Are you saved? Which means, are you ready to meet your maker, right? And if you are, are you assured of the fact that you will be allowed into heaven? Which Brings me to a cute little story. I've been perusing this book from the library. It's called Lies We Believe About God. William Paul Young, who wrote The Shack, I don't know if anybody read the book The Shack, but anyways, he told this, and I thought it would illustrate for us before we get into these three definitions. So I, I, I got a kick out of this. It says, uh, it comes from the chapter, God created my religion. Okay. A man arriving at the proverbial pearly gates is unsure what to do. Do I simply walk in, he wonders. St. Peter, who seems to be always on duty in these stories, recognizes the look of consternation on the man's face, approaches and asks him if he might need some guidance. I'm not sure what I'm supposed to do, the man begins. Do I simply walk in? Depends, says Peter, smiling. It depends, the man is surprised. On what? It depends on how many points you've earned. Points? I need points? How many points do I need? A hundred. A hundred, the man thinks to himself. That can't be difficult. Surely I have earned a hundred points. He turns back to Peter. So, for the last 15 years, I've been serving on Saturday nights at the soup kitchen, helping with the poor. 
he offers it, hopefully, more a question than a statement. That's wonderful, exclaims Peter. I will give you a point for that. One point? The man is shocked and he looks at Peter, who enthusiastically nods. In the moment, the man realizes this is not going to be easy. Well, he hesitates. I was a pastor for 35 years. I did everything that was asked of me. Preached and married people, counseled and buried people. Peter is looking grim. Ah, I don't know. Peter, please, 35 years. Peter thinks quietly for a moment, then he smiles. Okay, I will give you a point for that. Now the man knows he's in trouble. His whole life has been basically summed up in two points, and he has 98 to go. Movement catches his eye. And looking around, he sees a man who had lived in the same town in which he pastored. He didn't know him very well. He was the sort of person who came to church services on Easter and Christmas. He did remember that this man owned or worked at a coffee shop in town and had always seemed pleasant, but he never engaged much with the religious community. To his surprise, the man smiles, waves, and then without hesitation walks right in through the pearly gates. What? he exclaims, turning to Peter. Are you telling me that guy has a hundred points? And Peter laughs and says, oh no, he just doesn't play this game. Isn't that interesting? He doesn't play this game. In other words, the man could have gone in had he not been preconceived that he had to earn something to get through the pearly gates, of which he drastically fell short, right? So, when we think about salvation, we can be liberated, restored, and have peace when we talk about how it relates to each of us and our relationship with God. So first of all, salvation as liberation. So each of these has a story to go with it. First time you see the book, I mean the word salvation, uh, is in one time the book of Genesis, that's it. But then it becomes a dominant theme once you're into the book of Exodus. And in the book of Exodus, you have a group of people that had been enslaved for 400 years to Egypt. God raises up Moses to be the great liberator that's going to say to Pharaoh, what? Let my people go. And so after a course of plagues that come through that uh, force Pharaoh to make the decision to let the people go, uh, we find that at the Passover plague, we find that the people are finally told, get out of here. And they're on the movement toward this land that God was going to show them. But on the way, Pharaoh changes his mind. And he sends an army in pursuit of these people who have left Egypt and they're moving northeast up toward the land of Canaan. And it is there they come to a body of water and there's some dispute as to if this is the Red Sea or if it's a different body of water. But anyways, they feel trapped in this cul-de-sac because here's the army bearing down on them from the rear and there's water in front of them. And how are they going to be delivered from this situation? And in chapter 14, Moses stands up and he says, Do not fear, stand by and see your salvation. 
okay? So there's this anticipation that God is going to do something. And he's going to deliver them out of this dire situation. And as he does so, it is termed the, uh, coined the term salvation. So they go through, they're delivered. And on the other side of this body of water, it's there they encamp and they throw a party. And in chapter 15 of Exodus, it tells us that as they are reminding themselves of the great victory that God has brought to them, that they, they sing a song. And the song is the song of Moses and Miriam. And here's what it says in chapter 15. Listen. I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. Both the horse and the driver he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. So the first time we see the word salvation, it has something to do with letting people be free, setting them free. It doesn't really have anything to do with the afterlife. It doesn't have anything to do with a post-mortem experience. It has to do with liberation. It has to do with the fact that these people have been impressed in for 400 years and now they are free to start to identify as a new group of people that will be named after Jacob, Israel, one who struggles with God and prevails. And so what we find here is what is pretty characteristic in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, two-thirds of the word salvation occur in the Old Testament. So the majority of them. But Old Testament theology does not hold much description about the afterlife at all. In fact, the Jews probably didn't have a well-defined theology of the after-death experience. They felt all people went to a place called Sheol, S-H-E-O-L, Sheol, which is just basically the grave. Everyone went to the grave. It's not till you get to the book of Daniel that you begin to see a little bit about resurrection and the potential of life after. So here's a group of people that's not talking about afterlife experience. It's just about liberation and it's about freedom. It's about being set free from that which is holding you down. Okay? So first idea of salvation is this idea of liberation where the chains are broke and the people are set free. The next one is restoration. Now this is an interesting one. So if you follow the uh, Old Testament one of the things that you're going to find is that after these people have been set free and they settle in the land, there is a series of empires that take them back into captivity. And on Wednesday nights in our Wednesday study, we've been talking through the book of Daniel. And the book of Daniel talks about how Babylon and the king Nebuchadnezzar came into Jerusalem three different times destroyed the city, destroyed the temple, and took people back in exile 900 miles away back to Babylon. 
it is there that they will spend approximately 70 years before the Babylonian Empire is conquered by the Persian Empire and a man by the name of Cyrus will allow the people to go back to their land. In the stories of Ezra and Nehemiah in the Old Testament, the people go back to the land. It's there they find the devastation and the ruin that they have to rebuild. They have to rebuild the temple. They have to rebuild homes. They have to rebuild the wall around the city. But what's fascinating is the prophets anticipated a day when they would be able to go back and their life would be restored. And as they go back to their homeland, this restoration back to who they were prior to uh, Babylon invading them, uh, we find that there is this idea of coming home. There's this idea of coming home. So in Isaiah, we find some of those type of things. Here's one out of Isaiah chapter 14, verse 1. This is a promise. The Lord will have compassion on Jacob. Once again, he will choose Israel and will settle them in their own land. Foreigners will join them and unite with the descendants of Jacob. Nations will take them and bring them to their own place. So there, there's this anticipation that they're going to come back. And in Isaiah chapter 55, there's this wonderful uh, section of the book of Isaiah where there's this anticipation that those who seek the Lord will find him and those that uh, call upon them will be saved. So there's an invitation in chapter 55, come all you who are thirsty, come to the waters, you who have no money, come by and eat. And it goes on. And then when you finally get down to verse 12, it says this, you will go out with joy and be led forth in peace and the mountains and the hills will burst into song before you and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn bush will grow the juniper and instead of briars the myrtle will grow. This will be for the Lord's renown for an everlasting sign that will endure forever. So the prophets keep talking about this deliverance in terms of coming back to a place that they had lost, okay? Well, Jesus picks up on that theme. And in Luke chapter 15, you are familiar with the parable of the prodigal son, right? So there's these two boys that are the sons of a wealthy individual. And the younger boy, uh, he is one that wants to go out and explore the world. And so he goes to his dad, I want my inheritance now. Rather than waiting until he passes away, he says, I want my inheritance up front. The father's hesitant, but he does so. He gives him that, and the younger boy goes out. He sows his wild oats, and he wastes all of his money. And by the time his last dime is gone, he doesn't know what to do. So he decides he's going to go back home and plead for mercy to ask to be just a common laborer in his father's estate because why would his father do anything for him since he was treated as he was? So the son makes his way back home and the father has been looking out for this boy every day since he's been gone. And when he sees his son on the horizon, he says, 
He's returning. He has come home. Kill the fatted calf. Throw a party. Because he who was lost has now been found. Or we might say he who has, was lost has now been saved. Okay? And what we find is he goes and he throws his arms around the boy and he, he then says, welcome home. And the son starts to, to say, well, you know, I, you know, I don't deserve anything if you'll just, you know, make me one of your hired hands. And basically, if you can read between the lines a little bit, the father says, shut up. You are my son. You've always been my son and you will always continue to be my son. And even though you have wandered away, you have come, what? Home. You've come home. All right? That's the second emphasis that we find in this idea of salvation. One more. And it's the idea of shalom. So there's this very special word in the Old Testament. Um, and the word shalom is the idea of wholeness. It's the idea of security. It's the idea we most often translate it at peace. We are at peace. We don't have any more um, fear of being destroyed. Okay, so the shalom that we find in the Old Testament is a very physical thing. It's something that uh, the Israelites had wanted all along, but the story of the Old Testament is they could never fully secure this idea of shalom. When you get into the New Testament, though, Jesus picks up on this, and he starts using this word. It's not a Hebrew word anymore. It's now a Greek word, but it's the same idea. And you'll find that many of the letters in the New Testament start with grace and peace to you, okay? Uh, Jesus will say, my peace I give you. He appears to the disciples after the resurrection and he says, peace be upon you. So there's this idea of peace, this kind of settled conviction that everything is going to be all right. Well, in Mark chapter 5, there's a couple of stories that's interesting. This idea of restoration accompanied with peace is interesting. In Mark chapter 5, we talked about this in one of our previous uh, uh, series where there was this guy that was, uh, was obsessed with demons. And Jesus and his disciples come across this guy. He's, he was so out of control that the community basically exiled him into a cemetery and chained him to one of the tombstones, Okay. So in Mark chapter 5, Jesus comes across this man, and this man has cut himself trying to get loose, and he's naked, and he's bloody, and he's an individual that seems so far out of control, and um, Jesus comes up to him and says, what's your name? And the guy says, Legion. My name is Legion. Well, that's a Roman term for an army an occupying army. A legion is about 12,000 soldiers. So what we find is he takes on this characteristic of the type of anxiety and type of fear that is present in soldiers that are dominating and ruling and intimidating the community, just like this guy is intimidating others who are looking at him. 
And Jesus then exercises these demons. Uh, if you remember the story, he sends them into a herd of pigs and they go off the side of a hill into the water. Back to the watery chaos uh, is the imagery there. But this is the line that I love it. The, I love this line in Mark chapter 5. After the demons were exercised, he was there sitting in his right mind. Isn't that a great line? He was there just sitting peacefully in his right mind. Shalom is this idea, not just a physical peace, but it's this idea of mental peace as well. That same chapter, there's a story of a woman. She had been bleeding with a condition for 12 years. And she said, as she saw Jesus in the crowd, if I could just approach and touch the hem of his garment, I will be healed. So she kind of weaves her way through and kind of reaches out and touches the hem of his garment. And Jesus looks and says, someone touched me. And the disciples goes, there's all kinds of people around you. What do you mean somebody touched you? There's a variety of people that could have touched you. No, 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 no. There was power that went out from me. And then he looks over and he sees this woman and she's kind of cowering because she's been found out, right? She's the one that touched Jesus with this expectation. And now this shalom isn't just a, an individual thing. It's a communal thing as well. He says to her that her faith has made her well. And now she who is unclean, who has been exiled from the community because of Jewish religious laws, can be restored back to the community, can be brought back into the circle of friends, and she can be at peace. So in Luke chapter 19, there's the story of a guy by the name of Zacchaeus. I know I'm throwing a lot of different scripture references to you, but you know the story of Zacchaeus. He's this tax collector. He's a mob boss, basically, a Jewish individual that has turned his back on his own people to make money. And he's an individual that hears Jesus is coming into town and the crowd is surrounding. So he climbs a tree to get a view of Jesus and Jesus comes up to this tree and says, Zacchaeus, come down. I'm having dinner at your house tonight. And so he goes to Zacchaeus' house and who are Zacchaeus' guests at this dinner party? Well, other tax collectors. Basically, not religious folks, not Pharisees, not Sadducees. It's basically other people that are kind of like him. And while this dinner party is going on, Zacchaeus stands up. And he says, if I have done anybody wrong, which he did many times over, he said, I'm going to make it up to you and I'm going to restore to you four times the amount I've taken from you. Then Jesus stands up and he says, salvation has come to this house today. He was delivered from his own greed. He was delivered from his obsession that was driving him crazy because how much is enough money? Well, it's the next dollar and the next dollar and the next one after that. And here he finds this peace that comes over him because he was allowed to be restored to the community that he had exiled, and he had been forgiven of the many things that he did wrong. 
none of these illustrations have to do with the life hereafter. Okay? They all have to do with tangible things here on earth. Now, let's go back to this umbrella term. So, you have both Old Testament and New Testament. You have a word that is often translated salvation. But underneath that word is a variety of different things. Sometimes it has to do with liberation. Sometimes it has to do with restoration. And sometimes it does have to do with the peace that is settled in the heart of those that are willing to let God be their Savior. Okay? So when we ask someone if they've been saved, we have narrowed the term down to kind of a peephole that we're looking through. Does salvation relate to the afterlife? Sure it does. It relates to the hope and security and assurance that when we draw our last breath, we will be in the presence of God and we will be a part of that kingdom of God, whatever that may look like in the hereafter. However, what we do have is even before then a peace that passes all understanding. And what we have in the New Testament, in the book of Romans, you have Paul, and this is the last scripture verse I'm going to give to you this morning. But listen closely. Paul is writing, and in chapter 5 he says, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, it's another way of saying our faith has given us forgiveness and a new hope. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into the hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now listen, since we now have been justified through his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Isn't that good? That's a tremendous passage that talks about salvation, not only in the here and now, while we go through the sufferings and the trials and the distress of life, but when we draw our last breath and we are in the presence of God, post-mortem experience. We already know that we have been saved to the point of liberation, restoration, right? And peace. So here's what I want to tell you. When we open up the umbrella of the word salvation, you have this idea here 
of liberation. We have been set free. You have this idea of restoration. We have come home. You have this idea of peace, both internally and hopefully externally with other people as well, this peace that passes all understanding. How is it accomplished? Jesus is the handle to all of this. And faith is the willingness to put our hand around the handle. And so we trust that Jesus is able to bring liberation, restoration, and peace. Right? It, it's such a wonderful, beautiful word. And it's, don't just limit it to how do I get past per, uh, Peter in the pearly gates, right? It's something that radiates such hope. So here's how I want to end today. There is this idea that we receive this type of salvation through repentance. Mark chapter 1, verse 15, repent and believe the good news. Repent is an interesting word as well that has often been misused. We often associate repentance with shame or guilt. The word in Greek is the idea of to think again. It's this idea, metanoieo is the word. Noeo, to think, meta, after, to think after. In other words, to rethink how you look at life, to rethink how you're trying to approach your life. And so repentance isn't this huge, shameful thing. It is this thing that says, you know, I've been using this tiny little fold-up umbrella that's only this big. <laughs> When God's work through Christ is so much bigger, I need to rethink that. And to repent is, I'm going to go that way. I'm not going to go this way anymore. I'm going to go that way. So I love the way this um, monastic priest by the name of St. John Climacus said, to repent is not to look downward at my own shortcomings, but upward at God's love. It is not to look backwards with self-reproach, but forward with trustfulness. It is, it is to see not what I have failed to be, but what by the grace of Christ I might yet become. And I think that helps us to repent, believe the good news, to receive the salvation, not only for this life, but into the life to come. So would you stand with me and we will close in prayer. And I trust that you'll have a, a great week as we uh, Move into another fall week. Join me in prayer, please. Heavenly Father, thank you that you have allowed us to be together this morning. Thank you that salvation is so much bigger and deeper than what we often think it. We ask, Father, that it might give to all of us hope, and it might bring hope, not only healing, but might bring to us joy and peace as well. We thank you that... Christ has made this possible, and we're thankful that we get to put our arms around him by trusting him in the things that he has already provided. We give you praise today through all, for all these things. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Have a great week, everyone.